When the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention eased COVID-19 guidelines earlier in August, many let out a sigh of relief. But as the nursing home industry toils its way through operational recovery amidst a staffing shortage, leaders in the space can't help but wonder when their turn will come to lessen some of the restrictions put in place more than two and a half years ago. That must be step one, according to CareSpring CEO Chris Cherumbolo. And Cherumbolo isn't the only one with such concerns. Providers across the country have struggled to recruit and retain staff in nursing homes when many other workplaces testing and masking requirements are no longer in place. COVID continues to be an issue both in nursing homes and across the world, but both the number of hospitalizations and deaths have declined dramatically. I spoke with Chris to find out why restrictions lessening must be such a high priority, as well as what CareSpring has done on the labor front, how it determines the strength of a potential acquisition, and why the company has stayed in its regional footprint. Before we get to that conversation, I'd like to highlight an upcoming event. On December 1st, Skilled Nursing News and Aging Media are presenting the inaugural Continuum Conference. This event will bring together executives from across Aging Media's publications, including Skilled Nursing, Home Health, Senior Living, Behavioral Health, and Hospice. Learn from peers outside your network and build new relationships. Request an invitation to this exclusive in-person event in Arlington, Virginia, by sending an email to events at agingmedia.com. Alrighty, getting into some recent news from CMS and its final SNF rule that includes a 2.7% pay bump and phased-in PDPM-related cuts. What are your thoughts on CMS's actions and how are you expecting it to impact CareSpring? Yeah, I think it's it's somewhat positive news, so I'm an optimist, so I look at that. I think what also is an optimistic approach is for all providers to understand that your voice matters. You know, you have to stand up and make your voice heard, not just for this, but into the future. You know, during this rule, CMS received thousands of comments during the rulemaking process, many of which came from facilities, nurses, aides, and other staff. And I think globally, that message from the front lines matters. I think globally for CareSpring, I think it will help somewhat, you know, but as we all know, our costs have exploded during the pandemic and patients on Medicare, which is what this rule, the fee-for-service world talks about, just makes up a portion of the patients we serve. The challenge is, I think, going forward is how do we rectify the several-year, decades-long issue in some states with the chronic underfunding of Medicaid? This population represents roughly about 60 to 70% of the SNFs residents. So looking at that layered in with managed care as it comes into more facilities across the country, you know, that component can be 70 to 80, 85% of the total population. And as we're going forward, those segments either don't cover the costs or in some cases, Medicaid grossly don't cover the costs. I have to give some states credit during the pandemic with added FMAP money, you know, with that federal dollars that's helped some states push those dollars to facilities. And so that's been a help. But I think it's a very much a reactive approach for, as I said before, decades long of underfunding. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the increased FMAP funding. I know that some states have extended that through the end of this year and, and others are looking to make that a, a permanent feature. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And you know, as you mentioned, with that being such a large population for residents, where do you think that's kind of headed? I'm hoping from the pandemic, and I believe from the pandemic, it's it's forced different people at the state level and federal level to realize that you can only go so far with quality if you don't fund it. And so as a result, I think people looking at like, what are the longstanding ramifications of this on a state level, state budgets? It makes sense 
to really address this. It also makes sense to have more people be in home and community-based services. And as a CEO of nursing facility chain with a couple assisted livings, I wish we had nobody in our buildings. I wish our census was zero because that would mean everyone is successfully doing well at home and can stay at home. But the reality is, is that many people are sick. They're sicker than ever and they need long-term care services. This is why we exist. So knowing that, knowing that that is always going to be a, a contingent and a reality, each state has to look at that. How do we vision this segment of that population going forward? And I think the good first step is the state's funding it more. But I think looking back from pre-pandemic and looking how it's not been funded, we have to create use the funds and create these funds to create the next generation of long-term health care workers, not just because of this circumstance with the pandemic. It was an issue pre-pandemic. Now here we're at the pandemic. The next step is the baby boomers. They're going to gradually be coming in. You know, we talk about 2030 being a huge year where this massive influx is coming in. We're already somewhat there yet in the sense that we don't have enough people to take care of the people we need now. So how do we get from here to there in a meaningful way so we ultimately, at the end of the day, can promote quality of care and promote a resilient workforce so we can be optimally where everyone wants to be in the future. Absolutely. And so thinking about, you know, CMS's decision and what you're talking about with state governments as well, do you feel more or less or the same level of confidence about the government's ability to listen to and work with nursing home operators? I kind of no level, I think I really have no change in confidence. You know, Stephen Covey wrote in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, about the importance to seek first to understand, then to be understood. You know, this comes from the unfortunate fact that most people in the world do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. So the federal government, CMS, need to truly, truly listen to providers. You know, this, this has been the longstanding issue from federal and state government, but it starts with the federal government because the state government follows many times the federal lead. So when you look at that, it's time to innovate on all fronts. And so the regulatory and survey process today focuses mostly on compliance over quality care. And this needs to be revamped as it distracts and often destroys the morale of our staff in SNFs. As a result, what's happened because of the pandemic, it's pushed good people out of the industry. You know, why work in a SNF, a skilled nursing facility, when you can practice in another healthcare sector like a hospital or healthcare field and not have to deal with this overall practice, this punitive practice by the federal government? You know, we have to do everything we can to keep these great people in our industry, along with developing these next generation leaders. Because right now, as, as a profession, you know, we hear from the associations, we're still down about 15% of the workforce. It's about 250,000 less people working in nursing facilities that were in 2020. You know, we have to fix those issues by stripping back and simplifying some of the COVID regulations. It's not 2020 anymore. It's 2022. We know so much more. The practices have changed so much more. In reality, we're the only healthcare sector still practicing off of some of these CDC and CMS guidelines. I think that's step one, because until some of those things are unwound, And I'm not talking about patient safety related stuff, how to manage infection, not talking about infection control criteria. All those things are vitally important. But what we can stop doing is stop doing the things that really don't impact resident quality care and really hinders the healthcare delivery for our staff. 
but also on a national and state level. We have to look, how do we develop more vocational nursing and STNA programs in high schools? How do we develop STNA programs so anybody who wants to become an SDNA can do it free of cost? Maybe you create a fund to do that. We have to get to the next generation of people and be able to get in front of them as a long-term care nursing home workforce and get these people to come to our setting. And at the end of the day, until we develop a system between the federal government that listens and adapts and adjusts based upon actual feedback, frontline feedback, we're going to be stagnant. Certainly, certainly. And I know we're definitely going to get into some of those issues a little bit later on, but I just kind of want to take a brief step back and talk about your journey into this role as CEO. How did you get into healthcare and work your way up the ladder? Sure. You know, I started, it all started when I was a freshman in high school. I broke my arm once wrestling and once again, playing football. So that introduced me to becoming a physical therapist. So I did some volunteer work in high school, became one in a uh, physical therapy school locally, and then got my master's degree. And so then on my last clinical internship, I thought I was dead set. I'm going to work in outpatient sports medicine. And I didn't like that setting as much. And so when I got my last setting was at a skilled nursing facility locally, and I fell in love with it. I love the fact that as a, as a person who could help short-term people get better to go home, get their life back, but also serve and take care of our long-term care residents and listening to the stories and listening to how they grew up, their life lessons. So that's how I fell in love with wanting to work in the nursing facility setting. So then fast forward, I graduated and I started immediately working in the industry. And then I, like a year or so after school, I started working where I am now, worked as a PT, grew into developing, overseeing the role of our director of rehabilitation service for all of our buildings since we have in-house therapy. Then from there, our founder and owner was a great mentor along with the other team members and started doing more administrator roles, CEO, uh, operational roles. 2014, I became the COO and 2020 or 2016, six years ago, I became the CEO. And I think when I look back, it's been a great journey at the same point as I can't help but thank all the people along the way who listened and but also pushed me to become the better version of myself. And so we just need to keep developing more people like myself and the others who work in our organization. Definitely. And to that point, you know, what are one or two pieces of advice you would give those in the industry who have interest in getting into leadership roles and who might be where you were when you first started out now? Understand that you can make an impact, a positive impact every day. You know, when you see something needs to be fixed or something doesn't really work, you know, people say, well, you can't change that's the way we've always been doing it. They're wrong. Don't push it off to the next person. Be part of the solution. Help fix it. Secondarily, Depending on what leadership level you aspire to, if it's department head or administrator or moving on into a larger role, you know, expose yourself as much as possible to all the wide variety of experiences because you need to understand as part of your decision making process, you need to walk, I personally believe, walk through those shoes and understand some of the perspectives before you make decisions about it. And for me, it was finding a mentor or leader or leaders to talk through my ideas, challenges and some ideas off of. So ultimately, it could help shape me into become the leader I am today. Definitely. And so switching back here to CareSpring specifically, how would you describe 2022 thus far? And do you anticipate the operating environment to get better or worse? Um, I 2022 feels a lot like 2021. It's been predominantly working on staff retention, 
team member engagement. But I think a lot of it goes back to the COVID rules that we're that are overseeing us. You know, a lot of the things need to be updated from a CDC and CMS standpoint. That is probably challenging. You know, when you go in the community and you see, understandably, no one's wearing masks, no one's doing things, but then we're the only place where you have to do all these extra things. And yes, I get it. Patient, quality care, resident safety is most important. But when you're dealing with a population, a global population, the United States population, where probably 95% the other day have been either vaccinated, prior infection, have been boosted, there's a lot stronger immunity out there. Some things can start unwinding. And I know the associations have produced um, some information to the government on how to unwind those things. So I think that is is a big focus. I think opportunities are why I think there's an opportunity where it could be a little bit better as an optimist is that just like any time we have challenges, time to really look deep and try to innovate, you know, simplify processes so we can meet the overarching goal to provide great care to the patients. And so it's forced us more than ever to sit down and talk to our staff, just like I was saying with Stephen Covey, understand some of their challenges, try to fix some of those longstanding issues that they've been dealing with, because you have to focus on the things you can't control and advocate for the things that you can't. Certainly, certainly. And you were talking a little bit about rising costs and inflation. How are some of those things impacting CareSpring specifically? Um, I think the, I mean, the biggest cost is just we're paying our staff more. We're, our focus has been try to be agency free. And I think we've globally done a really good job with that. So that is taken the federal dollars and the state dollars that we've been given by our states and, and our federal government to pass that on to our staff. And um, so with that, when 2021 and 2020, early in 2020, we started paying our staff more right there because we knew there was a fear factor in 2020. We didn't know what we're dealing with. People were scared. You know, we needed them to continue to help us take good care of the patients. So, and then 2021, 2022, the the global inflation has ballooned. It's challenging in the sense that, you know, how do you forecast, predict, and figure out how you're going to be able to afford paying your staff that much more paying for your food, paying for all those supplies. That's where, again, going back to the advocacy approach is trying to work back with the the governments and making sure that we can keep getting reimbursed or getting an adjustment in reimbursement going forward and helping tell the story. I don't think many people are sometimes, they don't have a bad intent. They just don't understand what we do and don't understand the challenges and just trying to keep it as simple as possible. So that's, I mean, how do we manage it? We just manage it day by day. And, you know, we've got to make sure we're meeting the patient's expectations, but also the challenging part layered in, we've limited some of the missions we've taken in our building because we want to try to remain agency free. If we can't take care of certain patients, that many more patients, we're just not going to admit them. And so that's a challenging decision to have to make in a position like me. It's a no brainer from a quality of care standpoint, but the challenging part is there's patients out there who need to be taken care of. There's hospitals banging on facilities doors asking for help asking for to get the throughput through, but we've had to make those tough decisions about not admitting certain people because we don't have the staff to do it. And But also, when you want to invest and innovate, it's hard to do that when, as an industry and as a whole, you're only reimbursed at a stagnant, fixed reimbursement rate. Yeah, that, that segues nicely into my next question. I know you had mentioned that you're looking to, to stay agency-free as well as, you know, with that um, having to cap admissions at a certain point. Where does SNF occupancy stand for Care Spring at this point? And where are you guys at in terms of getting back to pre-pandemic levels? 
we're about five percentages below our pre-pandemic level. We were about 91% globally pre-pandemic right now. So we're about 86%. Again, the biggest limiting factor is the staff it takes to open that extra unit or open that extra hallway and some of our buildings. And so we have some buildings that are in the 90%, they're doing great. But as whenever you have maybe a couple COVID patients pop up or some team members test positive, that's the self-limiting factor. So then you have to make sure you isolate and create more spots in the patients for cohorting patients that are positive. If you have team members that now have to be off work for a period of time, that limits you. And so that's the reality we're playing with now, which is preventing us from getting to where we fully be. I know in our Northern Kentucky markets, you know, being in Cincinnati, Dayton, and Northern Kentucky, we're geographically concentrated like 90 miles from most north to most to the southern facilities. We could be full in some of our markets if we had the staff. So that's the thing. That's why workforce development, which I'll talk about later, is one of our biggest driving efforts and advocacy going forward. Yeah, definitely. And so back in 2019, I know you sat down with Skilled Nursing News and talked about why CareSpring only builds facilities versus buying and renovating something already on the market. You also mentioned in that same interview, the next step would be to take on a renovation. So I'm wondering where CareSpring is at in that process, renovations versus new builds, and anything else you can share about that strategy in particular. So in 2019, right after I think we did that interview, we ended up taking over um, a skilled nursing facility for one of the large regional hospitals who had a skilled nursing facility on one of their hospital campuses. Um, they just wanted to divest, didn't want to manage it. So we started managing it. Then we took over the operations at the end of 2019 with the goal, which is what we just achieved this last year. We built a brand new um, SNF um, right across the street from the hospital and the current facility. And we were able to move all those residents from the from the older building to the other one. So the hospitals can use that, the physical plan again for operational hospital needs. So that was the first step. And then also since then, you know, we're always looking for new opportunities. As I said before, we had in 2022, just literally three months ago, we took over in the north side of our market, we took over three SNFs, assisted living, memory care, independent living and cottages from a third generation family operation. It was a no brainer in that sense, because it was within our physical footprint of other facilities, but also made it was like mindedness and operations. You know, the family was there to do the right thing at the right time. And that kind of aligned very well with our values and what we're trying to get done. And also what came with it was really good people, good leaders. So going forward, we're, we're always looking to see what opportunities are out there. There's unfortunately a lot of facilities that are on the market because a lot of facilities are struggling and just a lot of people just want to get out of the industry altogether. So we're being very strategic and focused on, you know, something that these like in these facilities, they were, they were well maintained from an environment maintenance standpoint. And so taking over buildings that have that like-mindedness makes it a lot easier going forward. So we're still looking for that in our market. The regional footprint is very much important. We do not really want to stretch out into multiple other states because that's where you lose control in our minds of the overall operations and the vision and the mission of the organization. Yeah, you know, you talked a little bit about the the regionalization and some of those things that are important. What are some other things that CareSpring looks at when it's considering expansion? I think just kind of going back to like, you know, how do they operate? What, what, how they operate in the years, not just financially, but 
the culture and the people and and then what are the opportunities when you look at that so when you look at a building you know do they have relative good processes and if they don't that's still okay do they have good physical plant to get done the way you way you want to provide care or is it going to be something where the building's 50 years old and needs to completely be rebuilt those are the things you have to look at i think at the end of the day is it within a, a general physical footprint so we can be there within an hour or two or a couple hours to be able to, if they need support, immediate support, we can be there to help them. But I think at the end of the day, having the like-mindedness and the approach, going back to what I said before, and how they provide care and doing the right thing at the right time, even if it's more expensive, is something that we tend to try to find those opportunities. Mm-hmm. Now, getting kind of to the the big topic of the moment for the industry, staffing. You know, I know that staffing continues to be top of mind for providers across the industry. And I'm just kind of curious what are one or two successes that CareSpring has had on this front and one or two ongoing challenges? So I think um, one of the things worked really well. So we created this role at each of the facilities, like a retention hiring coordinator. This person's role kind of melds a lot with the nursing department and the fact that our goal is as we onboard and hire new team members, you know, making sure we follow up routinely with them, make sure the onboarding process is going as well as possible. And with the goal of trying to keep them for beyond six months, our statistics show if we keep team members beyond that three to six month mark, they generally stay longer term. So how do we get them from higher date to that point and help them problem solve bring up issues when issues come up. I think another thing, I personally took this from another provider who was speaking at an event a couple of years ago. I do a CEO talk every couple of weeks. So as we hire new team members, um, I virtually get on with all the new people at all the buildings and explain who we are, explain what we're trying to do, You know, be as transparent about the challenges, transparent about how we're trying to manage the challenges, but also trying to empower them on becoming the next generation of leaders, talking about not just my story, but the hundreds of other leaders in our organization, how they've grown within the organization. Because as an industry, we have to get people to see it's not just a job, it's a career. It's not just becoming a nurse aide, it's becoming a nurse. It's not becoming just a nurse, it's becoming a leader, a manager, a director of nursing, or into some other role. And it doesn't have to be pigeonholed just for nursing. It could be it could go anywhere within our organization. And since our buildings are regionally concentrated, those team members also have the ability to be promoted from sister building A to sister building B and be able to grow where some operators, some buildings might be just limited by their facility in their just one location. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. And so has staying regionally focused helped with staffing shortages? I know you talked about promotion, obviously, but has that um, helped any of that at all? Yeah, I think if we've had, you know, the one-off issue or the multiple one-off issues, it's been beneficial that, you know, we can take a leader or someone from one building and move them to the other. If there's short-term weekend coverage, we've done that. And so I believe that definitely has given us an added edge. You know, I still think it you can only go so far with that. That's the ongoing challenge is that we have to look at how do we support the team members, since we're down 250 team members as a profession, how do we support those team members, especially those leaders, not to get burnt out? And 
again, it goes back to the advocacy approach. And I think the short-term advocacy approach is working with CDC and CMS about intelligently unwinding some of the COVID-19 infection control recommendations, because I feel like that is what is overwhelming staff because you go pre-pandemic, we had to do all these things which are really important. And then we have the pandemic and there's some things we can't stop doing because they are still important. But how do we meld all those tasks into getting back to what needs to be front and center? And that's the residents. And so staying regional has helped. So when we have a leader who's resigned or quit, we've had a sister building, maybe we'll be able to support that with another leader. I think, but the bigger challenge is, is you know, I'll speak personally with our company. We never had director of nursing turnover really at all pre-pandemic. And because of the pandemic, because of the grinding and the stress of two plus years of doing this, we've lost four to five directors of nursing business over 10 years. How do you replace that institutional knowledge? How do you replace that quality of care? It's not by more regulation. It's not by doing five more things that the government wants us to do. It's simply by understanding and listening to those challenges and trying to find ways to promote and uh, teach people resilience, teach people how to deal with stress. We can only do that so far, but when some of the rules and regulations keep bearing down on us as a profession, until some of those changes occur, some of those things will keep happening to good buildings and good organizations around the country. Sure, sure. And you've been talking throughout our conversation about um, carefully winding down some of the regulations that are in place um, by the CDC and CMS. What are What is one or two examples of that that you're um, referencing that might be helpful to understand what you're mentioning when you say that? For example, um, Amer- the, I know the association's done a good job, Leading Age American Healthcare Association, of giving um, boiler point templates about things. You know, but I just look at today. If I went to a nursing facility today, I have to actively screen before coming into the actual facility, writing down, I'm negative with all these things. I don't have any of these things. That active screening process, no other healthcare setting does that. Two, contacting families. If we have a new COVID case in the building, even though it has no relation to the person, the issue at at hand with the specific resident or potential impact, you have to let everyone know. It just, it strikes fear, especially in new admissions families. Three, NHSN reporting, the NHS, we submit all this data to the federal government, CDC, which is just surveillance. That's, I think that's okay. But I think there, it should be a managed by exception. You should only report it when there's basic new cases in the week. If you have new residents or staff issues, those basic couple things. Instead, it's just this, these modules have grown and they've cleaned up some of it and simplified some of it. But it's another task that we never have done before. You almost need a person, a data entry and data management person to manage all these things. So those are three things. I mean, I probably could come up with multiple others. I think having, I think educating importance of vaccine is very important. Getting as many residents is vaccinated and boosted and making sure we have all the resources to keep that up as for every nursing home in the country is vitally important. Making sure we know how to manage a COVID-positive patient, the buildings are doing the right way, That's those are all important. So there are some practices. I'm just saying, let's go back to the old practice that how we did it before and address each criteria one-off and look at the risk benefit to the resident and the staff. And more importantly, look at across the entire healthcare spectrum. 
and look at how no one else does this. It's why it's really important. You're a dietary aide. You're working, serving food for residents. Why would you, besides you're an angel, why would you continue doing that when you can go down the street and work fast food, potentially make a couple dollars more an hour, layered in the fact you don't have to wear a mask and you don't have to do any of these other things. Those ancillary apartments are getting are stripped many times for some buildings because how do you recruit and retain that that even non-direct care workforce to take care of the patient's needs? And that's where I say you've got to listen and understand to some of these practices. I know they, they're good intentions, very much so, but the practice doesn't really apply nowadays. I gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I know certainly... Uh, as we've seen in conversations with other providers, some of those ancillary positions, like you mentioned, are are not only facing competition from other nursing homes or other healthcare settings, but just like you said, fast food, uh, other companies, Amazon, other places that are hiring as well. So it makes sense. Um, so let's talk a little bit about hospitals. How have you seen uh, nursing home relationships with hospitals evolve and grow over the course of COVID. And do you think that skilled nursing's place in the care continuum has shifted at all? I think it's been, in our markets and region, it's been, it's improved. I say that because one of the positives about the pandemic is that many of the providers in our region have spoken openly about how can we do best practices. We had four or five providers with us included who shared PPE, but more importantly, we developed relationships with this Southwest Ohio, Dayton, Northern Kentucky, Southwest Regional Coalition for hospitals, nursing providers, public health to talk about. And we've been doing this for two and a half years. And we meet, we were meeting weekly, then it was every two weeks. And then when the the numbers ticked up again last year, back to weekly, we're about monthly now where we talk about challenges in each sector, what issues, but also having the quick avenue hospital can ask nurse facility, what are the new rules that just came out? Why are facilities now saying they have to quarantine new residents? We can talk through it with them. And it's all the hospital discharge planners. So I say in our market, it's it's improved dramatically because hospitals more so than ever realize they they know they need our help. And with getting patients through the, the continuum of care, they really need nursing facilities. But then educating them on what's going on, but also listening to their challenges too, and trying to find solutions. If you know nursing home A is making up these rules that really were from two years ago that have somewhat adapted to educating a large group of nursing homes. This, these are the basic rules. This is how it should practice to try to help facilitate that relationship in that one-off circumstance. But also as surge capacities needed about creating more COVID units a couple times during the pandemic. That coordination has worked. It's been very successful and it continues to be very successful. So I help participate and lead with a couple other providers, nursing home providers, a group of all the hospital discharge planners in our entire market. And pre-pandemic, they probably wouldn't have picked up the call unless we had a one-off issue. So I believe in our market, it's, it's, it's improved dramatically. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I certainly think that a lot of other providers will be interested to hear that as well, because it sounds like, at least from what I'm hearing and speaking with people, is that it has changed. And like you said, you know, the those calls are being taken and those relationships are being built because hospitals are realizing that nursing homes are facing similar issues and vice versa and are better understanding each other as um, parts of the care continuum as opposed to siloed healthcare uh, departments. Absolutely. 
And so what what is one new development trend or idea in the nursing home sector that excites you? I think artificial intelligence, you know, used not like having robots taking care of patients or anything. It's artificial intelligence that these different vendors and providers are using artificial intelligence to maybe, you know, triage through these mountains of of information from our electronic health record system or from hospital information to either triage rehospitalization risk to help look for PDPM related metrics that can help capture the care for a patient. Artificial intelligence, I think, is something that understanding we look at ourselves as a long-term care or geriatric workforce, how are we going to take care of the baby boomers? How are we going to, how are we going to utilize technology? And I think having artificial intelligence to try to extract these components in this machine learning um, is going to help us in the future. And so if you had CMS in the room right now, what are three things you would tell them about CareSpring and the nursing home industry as a whole? We need help on three fronts, reimbursement, workforce development, and regulatory quality care changes. So reimbursement facilities need to be appropriately reimbursed for all residents and patients served in the facility. Remember, Medicare is just one part of it, but Medicaid and managed care, some of the managed care plans are failing to cover the cost of care. Two, as I said, is workforce development. You know, we need programs and improved systems nationally and state-based to develop the next generation of nursing home workforce to meet the current and future demands of our profession. We already knew we'd have massive future demands, but the future, because the pandemic is already here, you know, the reimbursement will allow us to take allow us a facility to take and budget that they can pay this much more for their team members so we can recruit and retain the next generation of workforce. When you look at, if I know, as we were 10 years ago, we knew we were paying our staff 2 to $3 more they could make down the street in fast food. If we don't maintain, which we haven't pre-pandemic and through the pandemic, haven't been able to maintain that dollar edge that's what you need to get that certain people to become a nurse aide to then take the next step. So if a nurse aide's average wage, which has increased dramatically during the pandemic, but some cases it's still 2 to $3 less than what they can make working at McDonald's because the Medicaid budget and what Medicaid and the state affords facilities, it creates that catch up. And we've been playing catch up for 10 years. The pandemic ripped the bandaid off. So going back, the reimbursement helps. That then affords us to look at, this is where I think the federal government should spend all their effort is workforce development. How can we get to those high schools, as I said before, develop nurse aides, develop nurses, and get those people into the healthcare sector as a whole? You know, just blanketly mandate staffing guidelines just won't fix it. You know, there's clearly not enough workers in the market that are willing and able to work. Let's spend all of our time fixing that. And then lastly is regulatory, like which leads to quality of care. You know, the current system's broken, the regulatory system, it's too punitive. You know, why would this next generation that people want to feel like you're you're making an impact, you're you're being a positive impact on society. But when you go into some facilities, sometimes it's made you feel like a failure because the facility can only do so many things because there's a punitive process behind that can make you feel like a failure. As I said before, start with the COVID regulations, but there has to be a rebuilding of the system. 
and I say this because I there's people that advocate that more regulations, more everything is better. It's not. We have to have a collaborative approach between providers, between CMS and other coalitions to make sure at the end of the day, the resident and the staff taking care of those residents are put front and center from a pay, from anything else to allow them to spend time with those patients. Documenting more, doing more compliance and all those things is not going to fix it. So that's what I would tell them. And it goes back to what I said at the beginning. Truly listen to those providers. Don't come with your mind made up. Look at what's most important. Again, it's the residents and the staff. That's all we have for this episode of Rethink. Be sure to visit skillednursingnews.com for the latest insights and industry news and subscribe to Rethink to be notified when new episodes are released. Available now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. I'm Jordan Ryland for Skilled Nursing News. Thanks for listening.